From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Shailen Romney Garrett, who is co-author with Robert Putnam of The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago and How We Can Do It Again. So I was really excited to have this this conversation with Shailen. And, and this book, um, I think you guys would agree, follows in a lineage of books that Robert Putnam has worked on from Bowling Alone to Our Kids, both, I think, pulls in elements of those books, but also introduces a new argument into the mix. The other thing about Putnam is that he is very generous about bringing in former students and young colleagues to help him with whatever it is he's working on. The one about religion, American Grace. That one was done with David Campbell, who I think was uh, one of his students at Harvard and now teaches at Notre Dame. And I think Shailen actually did some of the research for that book. And now she's, she's a, a co-author with him on, on this one. What's really fascinating about this book is that it looks at 125 years worth of trends around really key domains in American life. So they look at kind of economic inequality, political, I guess we can call it political polarization, the opposite of that, maybe cultural um, cohesion, you know, like they talk about narcissism and individualism and uh, kind of a weeness, altruism. And then they look at questions around racial inequality as well as gender. You know, the thing is, is like there's no story without coincidence, right, that these trends line up really well. And then the big question is, is what are their relationships to each other? And does one cause cause another? And you know, we have to res- respect these, um, both Shailen and, and and Putnam as, you know, rigorous scholars to say, what we're not going to do is tell you that one absolutely leads to the other. And, and that, you know, from a social scientist perspective, you have to give respect there and y- you can, um, you can trust them as scholars because they do provide a, a, a good reading, a responsible reading without over making bigger claims than what they can make. But it is, it is remarkable, right? You look at these graphs and how they line up and how they all kind of reflect this, uh, what they call it an upside down U, is, is really uncanny. And you're right. They're very deliberate and circumspect about saying, well, this is what happened. Right. I think mm-hmm. his, his phrase is braided together or their phrase braided together by reciprocal causality, which is a nice way of saying all these things go together. <laughs> but we really can't tease it out any more than that. But that doesn't mean that conclusion is not both legitimate and potentially extremely important. One of the things that for me stood out again about kind of similarities and differences is that we're also kind of in a moment um, where there's, you know, dominant ideologies of individualism and meritocracy, right? And so because we are teaching young people that you have to work hard, that you have to get it for yourself, that you um, need to just, if you work harder, you'll get more, 
even though many of these things are not true anymore as much as they were, right? right. The ideas also serve as maps for people to kind of navigate how they interact with the world. And both of these kind of ideologies, individualism and meritocracy are ones that tend to lead people to turn their orientation away from communalism. So right. it's actually no surprise that, you know, we see these kind of upticks towards maybe not narcissism, but maybe selfishness or people in some ways think about themselves as a commodity and that you have to invest in yourself right in these moments where if you don't do it on your own it's not going to happen and it's not working out for democracy and so you know are we at a point of inflection are we ready to pivot which way are we going to go given what we know has happened before and all the possibilities that lay in front of us for the future very well said, Candace. That's an excellent uh, segue. Let's turn now to the interview with Shailen Romney Garrett. Shailen Romney Garrett, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So excited to talk with you about your book, The Upswing, and some of the extensive history that you cover throughout the book and where we might go from here. But before we get into some of the main arguments that you make in the book, can you talk a little bit about um, your interest in political reform and, and this history and how the collaboration with Robert Putnam came about? Sure. Um so I have been kind of a dyed-in-the-wool communitarian <laughs> ever since I encountered, uh, well, you know, probably before that too, but but certainly ever since I encountered uh, Robert Putnam's work in college. So I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I took his now sort of famous Community in America seminar the year that Bowling Alone came out in 2000. And so for those who aren't familiar with Bowling Alone, that was sort of a seminal, massive piece of research in which Professor Putnam marshaled, you know, tons and tons of data to basically make the argument that American community and the American social fabric, or as he used sort of a quantitative term to describe it, social capital, had been in decline essentially for 50 years. So at the time the book was written, again, 2000, he was looking back to sort of 1950 and seeing this precipitous decline in group membership and in civic participation and in PTA participation, even, you know, voter participation, all sorts of different things that sort of associationally hold our democracy together. And so I discovered that research. And of course, it was sort of a watershed for me. And, you know, that was 20 years ago. So um, Bob and I have been working together off and on in various different capacities since then. And Bob uh, has written a number of bestsellers now. And I think he thought our kids, his last book was his last book. But then he discovered these fascinating statistical trends that really form the backbone of the upswing. And I'll never forget um, the moment that I was visiting him and his wife having dinner um, at their home in the Monadnock region of New Hampshire. And he was just sort of wild-eyed with these discoveries of all of these different curves that he had found that track basically an identical trend over the course of 125 years. And these were very disparate, what, what we tend to think of as disparate phenomena, but they were all looking very similar and he just couldn't put it down. And that ultimately uh, led to him asking me to come in and join him and really shape a story around what... Um, 
his agent at the time was calling, you know, five graphs in search of a, in search of a story. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've now, you know, really come to understand together what we think um, the statistical discovery means for America, both looking backward and looking forward. Yeah, and that that story that you were just mentioning, um, you lay out in the book as the I we I curve. Can mm-hmm. you talk us through what that means? Essentially, this book. So again, g- using bowling alone just as a reference point, bowling alone looked at one single phenomenon: social capital over the course of a fifty-year period, from roughly mid mid-century to today, well till two thousand. What we're doing in this book is really broadening the lens and saying, first of all. What happened before that mid-century peak that we've supposedly been in decline in ever since? And also what was going on with other things like um, economic inequality? That's one of the metrics that we look at in this book. We also look at political polarization. We do look at social fabric or social capital, um, social cohesion. And we also look at culture, a culture of altruism versus a culture of narcissism. And the idea here was to try to discover what was happening over the course of this long period of history in each of those four areas. And what is striking is that what we see is this familiar decline that people will be familiar with from bowling alone is manifest in all of those different areas. We've had a sharp decline in economic equality since mid-century. We've had a sharp decline in um, political comedy. Political comedy would be just be the term you would use to use to describe sort of the opposite of political polarization, right? Political comedy means our ability to work together in the public square. Um, we've also seen a marked decline in social capital, but we've also seen the, a marked decline in how altruistic people are and an increase in how self-focused people are uh, over the last 50 years. But what's also and, and potentially even more fascinating is in the period preceding that decline, we saw a clear improvement, a clear upswing in all of those areas. So from roughly 1890 which was the last, um, the Gilded Age in American history, we were in a, a situation remarkably similar to what we are in today. Not just in the sense of sort of the historical or circumstantial features of the America we live in, although that is a huge part of what was similar, but in this really measurable statistical way, we were extraordinarily polarized. We were extraordinarily lonely and isolated. We were extraordinarily unequal and we were extremely narcissistic culturally. And then from roughly 1890, for about 60 to 70 years, America entered a multifaceted upswing in all of these areas that then turned in roughly the mid-1960s back toward a downturn. And so when we talk about that, we illustrate this, of course, with lots of statistical data. And when you look at these graphs charted on you know, the x-axis being this 125-year period from roughly 1890 to today, you see what we call, like you mentioned, the IWI curve, an upswing and then a downturn that follows almost exactly the same trend line for each of these things. Yeah, indeed. You know, I know you said that the trend lines are strikingly similar between these multiple factors, you know, economic inequality, social capital, altruism, all of these things. But was there any evidence to indicate that either on the upswing or the downswing that there was something that was a leading indicator or, you know, one thing that kind of kicked everything off and the the rest followed? 
Sure. I mean, that's the golden question, right? Because if you can figure out either A, what was the thing that really sparked the upswing and the thing that changed first and maybe brought all the other things with it, then that would be the thing we'd want to zero in on today. Or similarly, if you could figure out, you know, on the downturn, which thing turned down first, that would lead us to believe, you know, again, what might be kind of the driver of all of these trends. And I think going into this, we sort of assumed that economics would be the leading indicator. And that turns out to be not true. There are so many um, variables that we are looking at here, and the trends are so interwoven that it's really hard to tease out one leading indicator. But what we do know, actually, interestingly, is that economics lagged. So other things began to change first before we began to fix our economic inequality, which is really interesting because a lot of times people think we really need to get in there and fix the economic inequality. And once we do that, people are going to feel more like we're in this together. Well, it looks like from the historical record, that's not the case. So if it's not economics, what is it? But when you pair the data with the historical record, it becomes fairly clear that what changed first was culture. What changed first was Americans having something of a moral awakening, a reevaluation of their values to say, you know, America has always been about this balance between self-interest and liberty on the one hand and sort of equality and working together on the other. And we have gotten way out of balance, right? Um, and there were there was this sort of determined group of reformers that came around and really changed the cultural narrative. And it appears that that's actually what led during the last upswing, which is a really interesting lesson, I think, for today. Yeah. And then that also translates into policies eventually, right? I mean, these the same reformers that pushed for ballot initiatives and direct election of senators and, and all of these these types of changes that we saw during the progressive era. Can you trace a line from some of that early culture to the the policies that came some decades later? So again, looking back to the Gilded Age, it was this moment when in very familiar fashion to what we see today, there were a lot of commentators sort of decrying democracy's demise, right? That, that things have just gotten so unequal, that plutocracy and tyranny, you know, are threatening our democracy and populism and socialism had become really popular alternatives to the two-party system. Things that, again, are, are really familiar to what we're going through today. But what's fascinating is that in democracy did not go off the rails. None of those doomsday prophecies came to be. And in fact, we entered this upswing. So the question is how? And really, the short answer is the progressive movement. Now, it's, it's important to be clear for people who are not intimately familiar with that period of history, that when we talk about progressives in that period, we are talking about capital P progressives. We're not using the term the way that we would use it today. Today, we talk about progressives as being the sort of far left wing of our political spectrum. Back then, the progressive movement was actually a bipartisan movement. It was more of an ideological movement in the broad sense. And it was so diverse as to be barely coherent in a way, in, in, in the sense that it included people for whom, you know, there were all sorts of different issues that were important. And they were talking about child labor legislation, and they were talking about trust busting, and they were talking about 
temperance, you know, and all these different things that were part of this movement. It was so diverse and so bipartisan, in fact, that in the 1912 election, all three presidential candidates were jockeying for the term progressive. I'm the most progressive. No, I'm the progressive candidate, right? Which which indicates how popular um, and how widespread this movement had become. But what people forget was that, again, that kind of political change and particularly national political change was really a lagging part of this story. What was happening on the ground 20 years before the 1912 presidential election was a vast citizen-driven movement. So you had all of these um, very young reformers who looked around and just said, you know, we are living in a different world than our parents were. This is a generation who had sort of coming into into adulthood on the heels of the Industrial Revolution. There'd been a vast movement of people into the cities. And so life just looked so different than it did a generation before. And there really began to be this, what um, historian Richard Hofstetter has called a moral indignation directed inward. These reformers were not just people who were pointing the finger at the idle rich and saying, you know, you've ruined America. Like, Or it wasn't about just sort of expelling the bad apples. It really was about sort of a group of chastened elites who themselves began to see the ways in which they were complicit in building an extremely unequal, extremely polarized, extremely lonely, um, isolated, and narcissistic society. And so these are the people who began to change the narrative. Again, they were very young. The vast majority of progressives were 30 or younger when they rose to prominence as reformers. And these were people who prioritized association as an end and also as a means. So you had, you know, people graduating from universities and going into, you know, becoming the elite leaders of society, having literally no idea how the other half lives, to to use the title of a famous book from the period, right? And these people began to realize not only did they need to build bridges of understanding across um, social classes, but also that they just needed to invent new ways of bringing people together again. And so they um, started settlement houses, they started civic associations, they they started service organizations, and they created really a vast new store of social capital that fueled this upswing for decades. Mm-hmm. And they were extraordinarily innovative. They experimented a lot with solutions at a very local level. Louis Brandeis, the progressive, called this um, tinkering in the laboratories of democracy. So yeah, these that is a familiar people. phrase to listeners of, of our show. Oh, <laughs> Thank you for, for drawing that in here too. So they were not people who were going, okay, we've got all these problems. Like, let's look to the federal government to fix it. The federal programs really came again on the end of this movement. What was the beginning of it was a bottom-up, citizen-driven movement to reclaim individual agency, to reclaim citizen agency in the face of dizzying drift in a society that had totally changed and had sort of gone off the rails. People wanted to reclaim their ability to control their own lives and to to create solutions. And they started doing so. And those solutions bubbled up and sort of found common cause with one another. And and that became sort of a movement that ultimately um, bore fruit in these federal programs that kind of programmatized these ideas. Um, And I could give some examples of that uh, if you want me to, but that is really what happened. And so then the Teddy Roosevelt's come along at the end of this and translate that popular uprising into policies and programs that can really have bipartisan support. So this idea today that we're going to, you know, look to the White House or Congress 
to solve our problems, I think is a bit erroneous. Um, when we look to history, when we look to a time that's very similar to where we are today and to a, to a reform movement that actually ushered in a 60 to 70 year upturn on all of these different metrics, it was a citizen driven movement. It seemed as we were on that upswing, the parties consolidated uh, and then they've sort of stayed that way as we've gone back through this downswing. Um, There are certainly people out there today saying maybe it's time that we rethink the two-party framework that we have today. I'm wondering if, if you have thoughts on what role the parties might play in this moving forward based on what we've seen in the past. Sure. I mean, you're definitely right to say that that, that a critique of the two-party system really characterized um, the progressive era. I mean, of course, Teddy Roosevelt is famous for founding his own party, right, called the Progressive Party or the Bull Moose Party. And also it was a period in which not just populism, but also socialism was incredibly popular as sort of an alternative way of of organizing ourselves politically and economically, right? And so, again, those are very familiar trends today. In that era of history, I think part of that story, of course, has to do with race. Because the one piece of this story that we haven't brought up is that, you know, for all the praise that we want to heap upon these progressives for, in a very measurable way, turning America around and righting the ship um, during this historical period, it's also really important to point out that many of them, not exclusively, but largely, were racist. So the we, this we that they were building toward from the I to the we Mm -hmm. during this upswing was highly racialized. And so some of the structural inequality that we are being asked to grapple with today was kind of knit into a lot of the solutions that these people created. In a way, um, their circle of moral concern was just not wide enough. Their sense of what the American we could look like was not ambitious enough the needs of people of color were sort of sacrificed on the altar of progress, as has happened so many times in American history. And that, of course, plays into, in an important way, what happened with political parties uh, in this country. And so I think today, the call, in my opinion, more than, you know, rethinking our two-party system, the call really is to do the racial reconciliation that we have not actually done as a country yet. And of course, that is what the Black Lives Matter movement is calling for. I'm not, you know, uh, that's what what is coming from communities of color is to say enough is enough. It's time for us to do this work. It's time for there to be an actual reckoning for for how much this has become knit into who we are um, as America. And I have a that gives me a lot of hope because I think to a certain extent the reason that the upswing gave way to a downturn was a, lo- a lot about white backlash to the civil rights movement. I mean, this this kind of peak of we-ness that we got to in the mid-century mm-hmm. was really what enabled the fragile national consensus that allowed us to pass landmark civil rights legislation. Mm-hmm. But immediately on the hills of passing that legislation, white Americans began saying in large numbers, not in my backyard, which means that we'd done part of the work, but not all of it. And this goes back to what I was saying a bit earlier about how important the lesson is that during the last upswing, there was a moral reformation. These were people who started doing the heart work. They didn't go far enough, obviously, because they didn't, many of them did not do their own racial reckoning and reconciliation. But I do think that that's where this is going to start today. I think that race is going to be 
at the heart of, of the problems that we need to solve in order to get ourselves into another upswing. Thinking about these efforts that you were just talking about to build this new we, you know, Black Lives Matter, you talked about, I know you also have a background in social entrepreneurship. I mean, what are you seeing from that work that excites you about people who are trying to do this hard moral work or trying to grapple with what it's going to take to really have an inclusive social fabric to build upon moving forward? When I look at the Black Lives Matter movement, when I look at social movements, I'm encouraged when they are not afraid to call things what they are, which is a moral failing on America's part. We see that, you know, with the movement to advocate for for the families being torn apart at the border. We see that in the Reverend William Barber picking up the threads of Martin Luther King's work with his moral marches on Washington and the Poor People's Campaign and and we're starting to get more comfortable talking about things as not just economic, not just political, but moral. What are the values that we want to live out as a country? So I think of Braver Angels, which is a chapter-based organization happening all over the United States, bringing what they call reds and blues into rooms and producing through conversation, through mediated conversations, transformative experiences for those folks. There's a, a fledgling little organization that has come to my attention called the American Exchange Project, which is trying to create an opportunity for basically um, cultural exchange within the borders of the United States. So having kids from Appalachia, the, the original model was visiting <laughs> other parts of the country, you know, kids from Appalachia visiting um, Palo Alto and vice versa. Now they're doing most of their work online for obvious reasons, but realizing that there are real divides within our nation that we need to bridge and that relationship is actually going to be the answer. So initiatives that are very focused on relationship, those are the ones that are going to do the real work of, in, in Biden's language, you know, restoring the soul of America. And that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know we do have a fair number of listeners to this show who are involved in various grassroots organizing and groups like Braver Angels. And I, I think, you know, one thing I hear from them sometimes is a frustration that things aren't moving fast enough. I think it's easy to look back at the progressive era in, or even at the, you know, civil rights era in, in hindsight and say, wow, they did so much so quickly or look at all these things they did and here we're even struggling to get one thing done or you know move one small piece of it forward can you give us any sense of how people at those times dealt with with some of those frustrations or or if they even existed i suppose for sure i mean i totally understand those frustrations you know my background in social entrepreneurship was working in the middle east so talk about intractable problems and making small headway and feeling frustrated. So I definitely understand that. I, I do see that that's real. But one thing I want to say is that we talk about this upswing, right? And we often get questions, um, Bob and I get the question of like, okay, so when did the Gilded Age end and the upswing begin? Or uh, talking about it today, like, are we already in the upswing? How far are we into the upswing? So it's important to make sure that we're understanding here that what happened in the progressive era, what happened in that first five to 10 years of the 20th century was a pivot. So think about what a pivot means. To pivot means that you are actually standing in the same place, but you were, you were facing one direction and now you're facing another. You're still in the same place. And so I think that it's important for people to realize that the moment we're in right now is a pivot. 
even as Jane Addams was fighting tooth and nail to protect child laborers. There were, you know, other actors on the scene working for the opposite. And so the question, of course, becomes, you know, which, again, to use the phrase better angels, you know, which of those angels are going to prevail in America? And that has a lot to do with how many people jump on board with the pivot. You can't leave it in the hands of one or two people. And so it's a bit of a a sort of a tough love puck talk to our, you know, reformers today to just say it's bad. Like we've got to know how deep of a hole we're in here, but also know that unequivocally the historical record shows that there is hope that we will turn this around. We've done it once before. We can do it again. But I think impatience is is one of our biggest Achilles heel. And you're you're right to bring that out. We want to see change now. That's not likely to happen. Particularly in the sense that, like, again, another thing I like to remind people of is I like to to quote Eric Liu, who runs something out of Seattle called Citizen University. He says, we're trying to do something that's never been done in the history of the world, which is create the first mass multicultural democracy. It's not like, oh, this is hard. Figuring out how to do we with all these different people with all these different interests, that's tough. It's not only tough, it's literally never been done before in the history of humanity, right? And so just keeping in mind the scope of what we're trying to achieve here is important. One last thing I want to ask you about before uh, we, we let you go. So I've been thinking a lot about how and whether the media might follow a similar curve. So if you think about the progressive era, it was also kind of the era of a more partisan press and then as we hit the the upswing, the media kind of consolidated and in the, you know, mid 20th century, we had the stereotypical three TV channels and you got your newspaper every day. And now as we've kind of gone back down the curve, the, the media landscape has has fractured again. And of course, we have all different types of, of media sources giving all different types of information. Do you think that there might need to be some type of shift in media to kind of bring about this next we or, you know, where where do you see that fitting into this this larger story? Sure. I mean, I I do think that it's one of the scariest things about this moment is that we have actually lost a shared sense of truth. We hear that all the time now, and it's it's absolutely true that, you know, we all have a different view of what is true. And when we lose a shared sense of truth, we lose the ability to have a conversation. And so this for sure is one of the most important issues to tackle. Now, in terms of how I think we might do that, one thing, and this might sound a little Pollyanna-ish, I'm aware of that, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think that the best way to fight disinformation is relationship. Getting back, if you can do two things. You can watch Fox News and listen to them demonize the left, or you can watch CNN and watch them listen to them demonize the right. And that's very easy to stay in, in that stereotypical thinking if you don't know anybody and you're not in a relationship with anyone from that other camp. And so again, this goes back to well, if I actually know, and this and this is, you know, germane for me because I live in Southern Utah in one of the reddest parts of one of the reddest states in America. I'm surrounded by Trump supporters. I mean, I'm literally looking out my window to my next door neighbor who has a back the blue flag on his lawn, a huge one that's been there for months that I have to look at every single day as I sit here and do these, these um, discussions about the future of, of we in America. But here's the thing. 
being in relationship with that neighbor, he's actually one of my favorite neighbors. We talk all the time. Knowing him as a human actually complicates my ability to think of him as a stereotype, right? And so it gives me some pause to think differently about his point of view. And that's really important. So that's one thing. I think, again, doing the work to get back into a relationship with one another as neighbors is going to be important. And so refocusing people's attention, not on the big problems that seem so intractable, but focusing on what those problems look like in my own community, thereby fostering some critical and creative thinking about what I might be able to do about that. I do think that this is a moment to hope. I think that once again, I just want to emphasize that we've done this before and we can do it again. I am hopeful. I know Professor Putnam is hopeful that even in the face of this really dark moment in American history, we have the ability to not just drift along and say it's out of our hands, but to really grab the reins of history and right the ship. We love our democracy. We love the freedom and the liberty and the benefits that that brings. But now is a moment when we as citizens need to get in there and do the work to maintain it, to sustain it, to reinvent it, to do whatever it is that we need to do to create another upswing that's going to take us hopefully to a yet higher summit of a more inclusive we than we've ever seen before. Great. Um, very well said. That's, and that's a great place to leave it. Shailen Romney Garrett, thank you for your work on the Upsweek and for joining us today to talk about it. Thank you. And, and hang in there and good luck and good work to everybody that's in the trenches um, doing this work. We can do it. That was a great interview. Really interesting. And when I was reading this and when I was listening to her, I had a lot of kind of flashbacks to our very recent conversation with uh, Peter Pomerantsev, who was talking about a variety of subjects, including Russian propaganda and what democracy should do about social media and whatnot. But his argument was that there's something cyclical about the condition of democracy and that, you know, there is this tension, at least, between, you know, the desire to be an individual and to, to speak for yourself and to go as far as your talents will take you. And there's also this desire for community and for being uh, together. And it is interesting to, to think about that idea of cycle in the context of what Chaelin and, and Putnam are talking about, right? There, there's this, at the very height of this kind of we, there was also this fairly strong demand for cultural conformity, right? That that we're all in this together means we all are um, pushed, at least, to behave the same way, to believe the same things. And if you see it that way, then I do think that there is an argument to be made in terms of just all right, we've gone this far. It's not meeting all the needs of human beings, just like it didn't in the Gilded Age. And we need uh, a kind of restoration. I don't know. What do you think about that, Candace? I'm always a little weary about arguments about cycles. And one of the reasons is because discussions of cycles is a suggestion of inevitability. And, you know, that we go up and then we go down and then we go up and we go down. 
And to me, I think that a lot of the things that we see are choices that we made and and are often policy choices that we made that help some people hurt some people in bad inequalities, but also produces and creates and cements common sense. That common sense, it influence our choices and influences the narratives that we rely on, the stories, the rationales for how we got to where we got. And this is a conversation that we've had this whole season, right? It is difficult to maintain a democracy because it requires us to do so many things that are against our kind of human nature of maybe selfishness and right. Mm -hmm. that Like it requires us to be really hard on ourselves about working together we make choices about going up and down. It's a good point, And it's also a good opportunity to kind of reflect on uh, Shailen's interview and also on the last part of the book, right? Because it's called the upswing, which leads you to, and how we can do it, how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again. But there's really very comparatively very little about and when they do come to the last chapter, or last two chapters, they go back to talking about the progressive era and they talk about individuals who made choices, who saw something that they were dissatisfied with that angered them or saddened them. And they said, this cannot stand. This needs to change. And then they got people who agreed with them and they organized together to create this progressive era. They talk a lot about these really interesting people who are probably, you know, many people haven't ever heard of them. Ida B. Wells, um, Jane Addams, uh, Francis Perkins. These are all really important figures from the progressive era. But a clear implication of their argument is these people are just like you, right? They just, they saw a problem, they're dissatisfied, and they went to work and changed it. And if you want to make a we society again, if you want to move away from this abyss of neoliberal individualism run amok, then that's what's going to have to happen again. This is not a pushback. It's just a point that comes to my mind is that underlying this cycle, this so-called cycle, there is a steady trend. And the steady trend is that in every point of history, there are already existing alternatives to what we are doing, to either making it better or to maintaining some sort of communal orientation. I'm thinking about, for example, Gabrielle Foreman and Jim Casey when they visit us and talked about the colored conventions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 90 years worth of Black folks coming together to have a community-based understanding, conversations, debates around how to get the rest of the United States to allow Black folks to be first-class citizens. Right. We can think across time that there are always groups of people who are working to push toward the we. And so even like this business of we is really interesting, right? Like as social scientists, our currency is in averages, is in modes, is in generalities. But I mean, if we just stop and think about it, if we dug into the kind of the nitty gritty of the data, we would see at every point 
and the upswing and the downtrends that there are key groups in American society who've always focused on the weed because they've had to. Right. But the end of that book says that we're approaching one of the hardest moments in human history that we're, we're trying to create a genuine multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy. And it has never been done. And we have a moment to do that, but we should not by any means underestimate the challenge associated with that task. And uh, the point that uh, Shailen brought up repeatedly was that, you know, if you're looking for somebody else to do this, you're making a mistake <laughs> because these people who did it, who we now look upon as heroes, were just people just like you. And they were faced with a situation that isn't all that different from the one facing you. And those heroes are out there if they, right now if they are willing to embrace the challenge. Thanks to Shailen and Jenna for the interview. Uh, I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith for Democracy Works. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.